Hello, and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 5. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, mystery and thriller author, story expert, and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. Today is the last episode of season five of the podcast. Normally, I break down one episode of Buffy at a time, looking at the story elements and particularly the plot points. But today, as with the last episode, I will be looking at season five as a whole, as well as some of the other seasons. So there are some spoilers, this time with two special guests. After that, I'll be taking a break from the podcast for four weeks. So come back after that for the beginning of season six. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth, or in this case, into the Zoom recording. Today, I have with me two friends who love Buffy. I met Roberta Lip because she started commenting on this podcast, and I started listening to her podcast. She's co-host of They Coined It, a fantastic Mad Men podcast. And my friend Carrie Walsh, who I met in a Buffy discussion group at the bookstore (laughs) Women and Children First in Chicago. Carrie also is a co-host of a podcast, Coaching Carrie, about sex in the city. And Carrie and Roberta are great friends. They just met five minutes ago when we signed on to Zoom. So welcome to both of you. This may be the end of Carrie's and my long friendship because when we texted about season five, it turns out it is not her favorite season, as we'll find out. And she was shocked that it is, if not my favorite, that there is, is quite a bit I like in it. So I'll just start there. We cannot be friends. It it is not. So season season three, to spoiler, my first question, (laughs) season three is my favorite. But that is my starting question. So Carrie, you want to, well, let's start with Roberta, actually, because Carrie's going to tell us what she hates of season (laughs) five. And I want to start positive. But where does it rank for you, Roberta, on your most favorite to least favorite, if you have a list? So I don't have a, a comprehensive list. All I know is I just, I've been doing a slow rewatch, which I accelerated to to catch up with this conversation. So I just finished season five and I was really watching it through the lens of it's a lot of people's favorite or at least high ranking and people have respect for, for glory as a, as a big bad. And uh, it's not my favorite, but I've, I've come, I've come closer. It is, it is more elevated than it was before. I too am a season three fan, although in this last rewatch, I feel like I might have matured a little beyond it. Interesting. Yeah, isn't it? It's always been my favorite. Maybe I've just watched this too many times. I I feel like season five, the first time through that I watched Buffy, it was definitely not one of my favorites. I wouldn't say least favorite, but I there were a lot of things I didn't like, including Glory, who I still don't love, but we'll get to that. I just, I feel like Carrie is bursting to tell us. (laughs) So Carrie, where do you put season five? It switches back and forth for dead last with season one. Oh, oh, and season one is your, wow. And I I love so much about season one. So sometime we'll have to talk about all of the seasons. (laughs) I have a very controversial view of all of the seasons. I feel like I'm completely opposite of what most people love about Buffy. So 
What's your favorite? <laughs> yeah, what is your favorite? Six. Season six is my all-time, hands-down, like, Desert Island favorite season of Buffy. I would take those DVDs with me if I was stranded, you know, with the yellow jackets somewhere. <laughs> wow, I think we're going to have to do this again at the end of season six to to talk about that. Cause... Huh? Yeah, <laughs> where does season six fall for you, Roberta? I mean, I just did a quick rewatch in my head as Carrie was presenting this. There's just things I hate about it and things I love about it. Like, I get the greatness of it. I I hate the ultimate big bad. I hate that whole storyline of are we we're, we're Oh yeah. I, I was just thinking, I'm like, ah, I should have done that spoiler warning. Yes. So everyone, this is fully spoiled. So we're gonna go into all of Buffy and potentially Angel if if anyone wants to talk about that. So yes. So go ahead. Spoiler away. Well, one of the things I love about Buffy is how the big bad shifts, right? You start off so so season six. What who I meant was Willow. I hate Dark Willow. I hate that. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> that made me think about something. Is do we have a shift in season five for the big bad? I I feel like we don't really. I had not thought about that before, and maybe that's part of what I don't love. Me either, and me too. So I would posit that there is a little bit of a shift, that the big bad writ large for season five is death, and that it comes in two forms. It comes in Joyce's illness and death, and it comes in Buffy's challenge of trying to protect her sister and ultimately having to sacrifice herself. Glory is like an afterthought. <laughs> you know, that's so interesting because I, I just, these will have aired by the time, you know, this comes out, but they haven't now. I just recorded The Body and Forever, the next episode, and talked about is death the antagonist in The Body or death and grief, perhaps, together? And same thing in forever. Like what what are the who who is the antagonist? So that's an interesting point that really it is death for the season. Camera angles might be the antagonist in the body. Uh, yeah, that that's, that's an interesting point. But in terms of that early in the season, Glory shows up somewhat early, but before that, I feel like the shift is the idea of the key, we don't know, is the key going to be the big bad? Is Dawn essentially the big bad? Or I guess that's the question before we even know she's the key. Is is it something about Dawn? Is Dawn evil? And I, I feel like that doesn't work as well as some of the other early big bads because we don't know. And because we start out with the Dracula episode that sets off Buffy's journey into herself and the Slayer. But it it always has felt very one-off to me and like you could almost just lap it out of the season. And for the record, I wish they would. We talked before and you you like this Dracula, right? Or mostly, right, Roberta? Or we're okay with it? I found the notion entertaining enough. Uh, and I still do. I still respect the notion of sort of breaking the the wall of if there's a vampire slayer, there's still Dracula moves, right? So, right. so she's always heard of Dracula. And when she became a slayer and found out that vampires were real, nobody thought about, well, is Dracula real? Yeah, by so, the way, Dracula is real too. <laughs> so that, I think that reveal and exploring it a little bit, maybe not wonderfully executed, but I, I, I respect the, the premise. I think my favorite part is is Spike saying, ah, Dracula, he, what did he say? He's a bunch of parlor <laughs> tricks or whatever. 
<laughs> but so, Carrie, uh, t- what is it about season five? Maybe you can't even pinpoint it, but what what is it that makes it way down on the list for you? Season five gets demerits for kind of the same reason that, that season seven gets demerits for me, which is I get lost in the middle of the season. All of the episodes start to run together. I could not tell you before I started rewatching this for this podcast, the difference between Into the Woods and I, I even have to look up some of their titles because I don't remember, right? Like Crush and I know I was made to love you. But I mean, like some of these epi- triangle listening to fear, I could not for the life of me tell you what happened in any one of those episodes. Now, season five also has great episodes that I would say are some of the best in the entire series. Fool for love. But that's for people who don't remember. That's the Buffy and Spike where Spike is telling her how he killed the other slayers. Right. Yes. But I get lost among kind of like the middle, I would say eight to 10 episodes where I'm just kind of like, okay, Joyce is sick. Glory keeps like sending new minions and monsters to fight the Scoobies. Okay, Riley left, but who cares? <laughs> and I just kind of get lost. And so I don't like Glory as a big bad. I don't think that she's effective. I don't think that the actress is effective. I don't really know- think that they knew what they wanted to do with her. And then it's just kind of like Monster of the Week all linked together with Glory. And it just doesn't work for me as a season. But again, I think that this season really does have some incredible standalone episodes that lead the entire series in terms of how great they are. Yeah, Glory, I can never quite put my finger on why I am not excited about her as a big bag because I kind of feel like I should be. Other than that, she talks more than she does sometimes. So she threatens, 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 but doesn't do anything. But I want to hear from Roberta because I, I think I remember you did like Glory as a big bad, am I right? Oh no, so we're united on that. I was really looking to find what was likable about her as a big bad. And it's just even as we're talking, I'm getting new insights, which is how it works, right? One of the things that I don't like about season five, similar to what Carrie, what you're saying, is I get very confused about all these other bad guys running around and it's more toward the end when they run away and then you've got the army guys with arrow like it's oh right the knights of byzantium and and yeah i told you that like i've never i mean this time i sorted it out because i watched but i didn't even still care about their names but there's just so many messy things and glory doesn't develop and they do i knew i noticed some of the, the the technique stuff that you've talked about on your podcast of they had to have then uh start affecting her and bringing out her humanity otherwise why isn't everybody dead already and it it does go too long it doesn't make sense even though they start saying giving another reason but it doesn't make sense why she talks so much i think glory was an idea that joss had like i have an idea i'm gonna make up a, a, a big bad like this and and as rather than an inspiration like a thought of oh a big bad who's kind of like cordelia and kind of a foil for buffy because the people i've talked to who like glory see her as this this is kind of what buffy would be as a big bad which i actually disagree with but i understand in sort of a uh, a sense of she cares about fashion and her shoes and her hair and she why so 80s yeah <laughs> well, she just doesn't know any better. 
<laughs> There's a lot of female characters this season who don't know any better. Mm-hmm. It's an irritating season. <laughs> there's some great stuff about it, but there's, it's, you know, we've talked, you and I have talked about Dawn. Yes. Oh God. Yes. <laughs> she gets better as, as it, things progress. Yeah. Sort of. But I sometimes feel like there's a war in my head about season five because you guys both know and, and everyone who listens to the podcast know I like a very structured story. I like a very strong plot. And there's a lot of episodes to Carrie's point that it's not just, I mean, they blur together, but also where there isn't exactly a a clear story progression. I've come to appreciate the body. I didn't really care for it the first time. And some of it is it had more emotional resonance later after I went through things in my life. But a story should work whether you have had that experience or not. And I struggled in that for what is the story. And that doesn't make it bad, but it makes it less my kind of story. Forever's kind of like that as well, where John's trying to get Joyce back and Buffy's struggling to deal with Joyce's death and Angel comes to visit. And it's kind of these different stories that are there, but don't quite have a beginning, middle and end of their own, or if they do, it's a little lost. So that part of my what I love in fiction is no, it's it's not. But then I love the big concepts. I love the the concept of the key. I love Buffy's progression and her choice, how it is for her, like a way of finding peace and her purpose to make this decision to step in for Dawn. And I like the philosophical aspect of it where she says before that, if these are the choices, I don't want to live in a world like this. And she makes a choice to say, I am actually happier if I step in and protect my sister than if I let that happen to her. And either one will save the world. But this is the these there are no good choices. I forget what the line was from that episode way back with the character Ford who had the brain cancer. And she's like, you have a choice. It's not a good choice, but there's there's a choice. So I love all that about it. But the stories themselves don't always work for me. Yeah. I mean, I have a real problem with kind of the central conceit of the key. If this woman is a hell god, why did some random monks create an edifice for this key that was so compelling or so strong that a god can't tell what where the key is or who it is or what it is? I, I don't buy that. You, oh, you don't buy that if she is as powerful as she's supposed right. to be, why can why does she need to like chase Buffy and her cartoon pals around to find the key? Yeah, I just right. I'm like, OK, you made her a god, albeit you didn't reveal that for a, a significant portion of the season. And then we don't even really understand until the very end of the season what the key actually really does. And I sort of wonder if maybe the writer's room hadn't figured it out. Like, oh, like they went into the season and they were still sorting it out. Right. They hadn't quite figured out what they were going to do with this because it it feels very half-baked to me to start the season with this brand new character who's like, oh, my God, it's the key. Okay, well, what is it? What does it do? How does God not know? The timing makes me wonder as well. And you guys might have an advantage here because I haven't as recently watched through to the end. But if the monks made Dawn eight months ago or 10 months ago, where was the key before that? And Glory supposedly was somehow born in this or not 
she's sharing space with infant Ben, right? Who's supposed to be, I think, in his late 20s. So why, when did she start emerging? And then where was she before that? Because she's a hell god who's been, who was banished, I think they say, thousands of years ago. So I, I don't know if the timing works. But Roberta, you said, you, do you remember anything timing-wise about it? No, I never got the timing. The monks, okay. the monks were part of one more like rando, semi, maybe they're a big bad and maybe they're not. But But once you find out, I don't understand the monks. I don't understand. They feel ancient. So yeah, but they're not. Yeah, they're eight eight months ago. Yeah, they're just they're just there's monks. There's like senti monks in in hanging out near Sunnydale. So there's that. (laughs) And and the Knights of Byzantium, when they have so many of them, why does it take them until Buffy's fleeing in a in a camper or whatever they're in a Winnebago to go after? Why not soon her? And speaking of Renaissance Fair. If nobody knew the key was human, but then everything about the final ritual is based around Dawn's humanity. They put her in that bad dress. Oh, that's right. She has to bleed. She has to bleed, but she was never going to be a human before that. That's a really good call out. I didn't catch that at all, even though I just watched the episode where she was like, it could have been a log or a sneaker or whatever, but it's a person. It's an innocent. And yeah, that makes absolutely no sense. Nope. Roberta, you're absolutely right. That's the first time I caught it. I was like, wait a minute. That's dumb. Yeah. Because sort of kind of, they actually, there's like a line that sort of gets you there, but it's it's pathetic. I, I feel like there was a point when I, when that occurred to me and then it kind of went out of my head again because I got to like the season better because of all those kind of philosophical issues. Now, did you, am I the only one who watched it while it was airing in real time? Did you both come to it later? Later. Later. I think for me, when I watched it in real time, yeah, there was a lot I didn't love. And there was a lot I did. Like Carrie said, there are some amazing episodes, but I was I was mixed on it. And then when I, the DVDs started coming out and I was able to watch the show closer together, I was just so in awe of the story arcs because I hadn't seen a show before that did that, where you had a season-long, really definite arc that had this story. And then season five really impressed me because of the scope of it and, oh, isn't that cool what they did? And I feel like I started overlooking some of the things I didn't love about it. I mean, it's really when you look at the the totality of it, Buffy, it everything starts so light. Dracula is the worst thing that's happening. Right. Riley, everybody's just being the, the Scoobies. Everything's fine. By the time you get to the end, you're like, Riley? Who? And I oh, understand right. that's, a, that's a popular sentiment, but it's so long ago. She goes through so much. And there's a place later for this, but I'm just going to... I mean, there's nothing left for her in a sad, in a terrible way in this, at this, she's, you know, she went catatonic. She came out of that slate. That's a muscle she's built, but ultimately she really never came out of it. And she just, so it really was, it really was a suicide. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to watch for that as I, as I continue with the season, but I think there's an argument for that even just in those two episodes you mentioned, because right, for someone to go catatonic, and I and I believe that Buffy would at that point. And then it's not like she comes out and, oh, I've worked through all this and I'm feeling so much better. That's when she says, I don't know how to live in this world. And she wishes she could talk to Joyce. 
So while I think she finds peace and she seems happy when she makes that choice to stand in for Dom, we see in season six, she's back and she has to deal with all those feelings or not deal with them. Even though we're talking about season five, I'm really curious, Carrie, if that's part of why season six worked for you or did you see it as an outgrowth of five or or were you just like, thank God we're done with five and this is something different? No, for me, it's completely separate from season okay. five. Yeah, I don't I don't view season six really as an extension of five at all. I think that season six is more about trying to find one's true nature and how true nature is not of one kind or another. It's a blend of all sorts of good and horrible things. So, yeah, I mean, I guess you, I guess you start there in season five, but I've never viewed it that way when I've watched it. Yeah, I think I only started thinking about it with the podcast because I start thinking mm -hmm. ahead to like, oh, we seem to have resolved so much at the end mm -hmm. of five. Yeah. But yeah, Roberta, you you make a great point. Is it it isn't really resolved. She comes out, she fights because that is what she does. But it's it's not like all those issues really, it's not like they went away. It's definitely fun in the final episode. And I could see where you, for everybody, but you with your story and, and the different, as you were watching it in real time, as you described, when all the different elements come together, the hammer, the, the bot, right? Like each yeah. one, as each element comes in, that's fun. That's, that's exhilarating. And the wrecking ball. The wrecking, <laughs> the wrecking ball, right. Xander with the wrecking ball, which I always, to jump ahead, it drives me crazy in season seven when everyone acts like Buffy has, including Buffy, has never been up against a villain who was so much stronger than her and could knock her out. I, I'm like, hello, Glory. Hello, wrecking ball, troll hammer, like a Buffy bot. You could argue Caleb's somewhat stronger than Glory, but it isn't, it's not like Buffy has not faced this before and they don't make any reference back to it. They don't, I understand you can't ever do all the same things, but I wanted the characters to say, okay, well, we did X and Y or Adam. Adam also far stronger than Buffy, but everyone acts like this is just unheard of. Of course, that's the annoying potentials and that's a whole other thing that it's an annoying potential oh, who says that. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> we won't go there. It'll be on forever. <laughs> Season five. We're talking about season five. We could do it. <laughs> so I'm curious because we've been mentioning The Way to the World where she went catatonic. And that, too, I feel like is an episode that strikes people so differently. So, Carrie, what did you think of that episode? Did it work for you? Did it not? Hate it. Hate it. Hate I, it, hate I just it. was guessing that might be the case. <laughs> Today's episode of the podcast Buffy and the Art of Story is sponsored by my nonfiction book, Happiness, Anxiety, and Writing, Using Your Creativity to Live a Calmer, Happier Life. I wrote this book because I found for myself and many other creative people I knew that the same vivid imagination that helps us come up with compelling plot turns or character backstories or just tell great stories in whatever form we do can also lead to anxiety because most of storytelling comes down to asking what if and often coming up with the worst possible answer what if this woman who loves someone so much finds that person dead 
the night before they're about to move in together. That was the premise of my first detective mystery, The Worried Man. And in real life, those kinds of questions can lead to spinning through endless negative outcomes and thinking about the worst thing that could happen and whether you'll be able to deal with it, which for me usually happens when I wake up in the middle of the night. So happiness, anxiety, and writing shares ways to instead use imagination and writing skills to create more calm and happiness. From the book, you'll learn techniques to derail anxious, repetitive thoughts like the ones I just mentioned, ways to talk to yourself and other people, deliberately choosing your words to promote more calm rather than reinforcing your worries, specific targeted exercises to direct your creativity and imagination in positive ways, and how to rewrite the best parts of your life and relive them to feel overall happier and calmer. That's happiness, anxiety, and writing, Using Your Creativity to Live a Calmer, Happier Life by L.M. Lilly. Link in the show notes, or you can go to writingasasecondcareer.com slash happiness. Do you have a why? Not really. It just doesn't work for me. And I wish I had some sort of really intelligent uh justification for my feelings about it but i just hate it i I don't it's okay to just have feelings it's okay (laughs) to feel what you feel thank you speaking of episodes blending there's the episode where they run away she's catatonic at the end right at the very end and then the next episode is willow getting her out of it right it's it's the runaway one that is so utterly hateable for me and then there's some great stuff in it listen it has there is. it has the bet the the ben is glory scene which i was laughing out loud as many times as i've seen it <laughs> as arguably ableist as it is. because part of what's so funny is tara like being all not there but oh yeah it's one of the funniest things ever and so there's that but there's very i hate the tinge of it i mean they I hate the running away. I hate the caravan. I hate night skies. I hate it. <laughs> We're here for you, Roberta. Thanks. That's right. This is this is Buffy therapy session, actually. Yeah. We're going to talk feelings. We're going to validate each other. <laughs> hey, I'm sort of surprised that I liked the one where she is catatonic for almost all of it as much as I did because normally I'm not a fan of dream episodes oh, I was all a dream I'm I'm not I'm a I'm a very I like linear stories in large part which which I've I've talked with this about Roberta with some of the Mad Men episodes that have suddenly there's a you know a dream sequence mm-hmm. or there's something you don't know if it's a dream or not I had trouble in the body with some of the imaginings Buffy has because oh, okay. I didn't get it right away so I'm shocked but way to the world works really well for me. And I think it's partly because although it is happening in Buffy's mind, it has real effect in the real world. It's not a dream and then, oh, it didn't make any difference. And it's not a exactly just symbolic dream. There is an actual progression for Buffy. And I love that Willow keeps watching it and figures out what what it is, helps Buffy get to the point of it. So I end up liking that a lot. Which is another thing that normally, I think if somebody else wrote it, someone not quite as 
guild, I, I probably wouldn't have liked it. There's a hell of an emotional punch of watching little Buffy meet her baby sister. I mean, yes. that's, that's very powerful in this whole weird Dawn thing. And that moment when Buffy finally says, like, this is the moment I gave up. And it's just in her head that for just a second, she thought, well, Dawn would die and people would feel bad for me, but I would be done. And I I think maybe because I live in my head a lot, like for me, that's so powerful. That feeling is like, yeah, I can have massive amounts of anxiety or guilt over something that never, ever happened, <laughs> but that I just contemplated. And for me, that's, I identified with it. And also so much of season five, there are those gripping emotional moments. And there's so much I'll forgive if that's there. Uh, there's that moment in the episode that you can't stand where they're running away where Giles tells her he's everything he could have ever wanted in a Slayer and he's proud of her and she thinks he's dying. And it just, I cry every single time. The, th- the, the moment with the book when they figure it out, it, what, one thing it offers is it shows just how on she always is, on duty, how, how her whole being is always, this is who I am and this is why I'm fighting. She only had one moment, but also I feel like that's the, the suicide glimmer right there. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Right, because that moment is, sure, she's talking about, well, Dawn would die and people would feel sorry for me. But there's also a, I could just quit. And really, the only way for a Slayer to truly quit is to die because the monsters will keep finding her. Let's talk about the body. I just uh, finished editing it. So is there something particular you were thinking about with it, Roberta? I always loved it, or at least was fascinated by it. And it moved me. And the last time I watched it, I promised myself that I wouldn't watch it again. Like, it did its job. Yeah. And then... I was, I really, I took two weeks off again because I was like, the body is next. What do I do? Mm. And and you have to be ready for it because you're going to cry. So I finally was like, all right, I'm going to watch it because I couldn't remember if there was anything of other, you know, sometimes other things happen. And I didn't think anything did that would like affect the arc, but I wanted to make sure. And this time I was like, meh. It seems upon this viewing more like an idea. Like I have a cool idea. I'm going to do a death of her mother like this. And I'm going to do all these cool tricks. And I get why I get why Joss did it, like the angles and the, you know, and the body being so everything was so, you know, tactile and the, the yeah, naked, physical, the naked vampire. Right. But it's more interesting than it's more fourth wall exposed, uh, interesting than it. it again, it's emotionally effective. So maybe maybe I'm being too hard on it. But this time I was like, you know, I don't know. It's it feels so staged and fake. And I think it was supposed to feel the opposite of, I think it was supposed to be like, this is how people are. And I I get that this is how people are, but people are not quite that awkward and weird. And they don't actually punch walls. It was a lot. It was, it was very visceral. Like, I think it was supposed to be very visceral, but whether it felt that way, I, I, when I first watched it, I watched it. I also think I didn't understand that this was a different episode. I was waiting for, okay, when is it going to be like a Buffy episode. When are the monsters going to show up? I liked it better the second time I watched it. And then like I've talked about later, personally identified more. But what about you, Carrie? Because what what was the body for you? Is that one of those great season five episodes? Or is it one of the ones that you were just not into? When I rewatched it this time, I let me just preface this with saying that I am a person who never cries at television. There is one television show I cry at. It's six feet under. There will never be another television show that I cry at, I feel like. So I'm not someone who 
like Roberta, you know, kind of preps themselves like, oh, my gosh, I'm a crier. Yeah, right. That's just not me. So I was able to kind of come to this. And I feel like I always have a little bit kind of academically because I knew what the body was before I saw it. Oh, okay. So it wasn't a surprise to me when I saw it. This time when I watched it, I thought my first reaction was this is like if someone gave a high schooler an assignment, write a play about the stages of grief. This is what that high schooler would write. Interesting. It is stages of grief. But go ahead, Roberta. Sorry. No, it's, it's exactly. It feels like a project. It feels That's what I mean. Like I, by idea. That's actually a better way of putting it. It feels like he gave himself a, a, a writing assignment. Pro- yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I sort of stepped back for a second and thought, but wait a minute, that was who was the target audience for this show was kind of high school to college age people, uh, maybe young adult, like just past college, who maybe hadn't lost a, a person close to them yet. Maybe that was actually the goal was to kind of normalize all of this behavior that maybe the target audience hadn't really like about yet. And maybe that's okay. And then I had the third thought, which was maybe I saw this on like a director's commentary at some point. So if I'm quoting Joss Whedon back to us, sorry about that. This may not be an original thought. The the show constantly deals with death as dusting. And this was a real opportunity to make death visceral and affecting and emotional and last longer than the split second it takes for the dust to clear. And so ruminating in that kind of pot of emotions might have felt really great for the writer's room, for Joss, for the audience even. So even though it, (laughs) like, where is Glory? This is the exact moment that she should be stepping in. If you have the hell God, I mean, she gonna be like, oh, your mom died? Guess what? Even though that is not believable, it doesn't really hang with the rest of the season. It is a part. I mean, I think it serves an interesting purpose, if not an effective purpose, I guess. Oh, go ahead, Roberta. You look like you had a good thought. I'm trying to also place it in in its name where a project like that, an assignment like that was a more novel, you know, it was before the golden age of television, your your Sopranos and, and Six Feet Under and The Wire and Mad Men changed everything. So so it was a bold move for commercial television. I, I mean, I got to give them some props, but. And it was their Emmy submission that year, right? I mean, that that episode got an Emmy, I, either for writing or directing. You got an Emmy for something. Yeah, I'll have to look. I'll have to look and see because now that makes me curious. But it, yeah, that would make sense. And I and I think that is a good point that at the time you you probably was very unusual to have that type of episode. Mm-hmm. And one thing uh, I just listened to the commentary. So Joss Whedon didn't say the thing you just said, Carrie, but not to say that some other you know writer or someone else somewhere. on the show might have said it. <laughs> But one thing he did say was he had grown up watching TV and movies that showed death as this like transformative experience and it either brings people together or they have these amazing revelations or it brings Mm -hmm. this clarity. And in real life, he felt that death divides people and that there is no great revelation. There is just you, you have to deal with not just the grief, but the fact that there is a body and all these things that have to be done. 
and that he had a lot of people write to him to say they, it, it really, he wasn't trying to bring people catharsis, but that they found catharsis in somebody just showing that, yeah, it, it doesn't necessarily bring you closer. It might drive you apart and that it isn't this, oh, but it was brought me this clarity or brought me this beauty. That's what I found in it later in my life that helped me. And probably there weren't shows that did that. Now there probably are a lot more examples where it isn't, there isn't this, well, we put the death in and it's this transformative experience. But then I'm, I'm guessing that that was really unusual. What year was this episode? Do you know? I want to say 2001. One. Pretty sure it was 2001. Yeah. I'm trying to remember when Gary died on 30 something, which was a, a very, obviously a very different treatment, but a uh, a significant TV death that was di- unexpected and different and, and bold also mm-hmm. around the same time. But not that it's important. But it, no, it is. It is interesting, though. So now I want to look that up as well, just to see, because I I watched that on and off, but I, I didn't see that episode and I don't remember when exactly time frame it was. Well, one thing we haven't talked about is Giles killing Ben, which is an interesting choice to me. I completely buy that Giles would do it. But I had this uh, thought as I was going through the season for our discussion is, do you think Giles would have ever told Buffy that he did that if she'd survived that that day? You know, I I think there was no way he was going to tell her when she came back and was so depressed and everything. But do you think he he would have ever told her if they beat Glory and they stopped the what was happening and neither she nor Don died? Yes, maybe. And there's a there's a time and a place where he would have told her. And it's in season seven where he's having the conversation with her about what she's willing to do to defeat the, the first evil. And he's and she's saying they're talking about when she allowed Dawn to continue living and she sacrificed herself. And Giles says to her, but you would do it differently now. And she admits that she would. Yeah, I think that he would have added it to that conversation during season seven and been like, I cleaned up for you then. I shouldn't have to do it now. Oh, interesting. That I think you're right. If he was going to tell her, that would be... That would be it, because I remember being surprised when she said, yes, I would do it differently. But I Mm -hmm. think she's seeing like what happened when she died that we're told brings it out of balance. The first evil is able to come forward. All the things that come out of that. Right. She would want to avoid all of it and would feel like that duty to do that would be stronger. But why do you think he didn't then? Because he could have told her at that point. I think that he's already made his point. I think if she tried to say, no, I would still do it the same way, maybe. Like, yeah. maybe that's what gets that gets him to that point where he actually tells her. And so what do you think, Roberta? You think he would have told her? I don't think he would have offered it up. But I think if she started sniffing around about it, I think Buffy was wrong and, and Giles was right. And, you know, Buffy was a fool, very, I mean, she was foolish to let him live. It, there was a little bit of, there was a little bit of like, I ain't got time for this. I got to go save my sister. But, yeah. And it's, listen, she, you know, killing a human is not her thing. But to me, there is no moral, you know, part of what they did, part of what they did with Ben's character is they made him choose to sacrifice Dawn for himself so that it was easier for us to allow him to be murdered. Yeah, I agree. So that we wouldn't feel Giles was 
we wouldn't feel mixed about Giles doing that. But it's a no-brainer. I mean, nice or not nice, it's a no-brainer. Sorry, Ben, that's a you problem. <laughs> this is not just yeah. our world, but all the world. Yeah, it's the, yeah. Uh, yes, it's the entire world. It's all the worlds. It's- mm-hmm. You gotta go. Yeah, you, you, I mean, you can make that same argument about Don, but Buffy is, it, Ben's the one that is linked that's to glory. Right. And well, and actually, I take back what I said. You can't make the same argument because glory would still be around and would still be terrorizing the world and multiple worlds, even if you killed Dawn. So that's, yeah, that's why Ben had to go. You guys are making me feel better because I've always thought, should I feel like Giles did the wrong thing? Because I feel absolutely sure that he did the right thing. 100% did the right thing. thing. It had to, it had to. Well, I also think the show did not want us to see Buffy kill Ben like that, that Buffy's character, maybe she would have done it. But that was not what the series wanted in in Buffy as a hero. They didn't want us, the viewers, to have to see her do that. Well, and that to me is the moment. If there is a moment in season five that foreshadows season six, that's the one. Because to me, season six is who are you and who do you choose to be? And Giles is making a very definite choice in that moment about who he is and what he's willing to do. And he knows himself Mm -hmm. really well because... I didn't feel he was conflicted about it, maybe a tiny bit because he explains it to Ben, but I, I felt like Giles, he knew he would make that choice. That's, that's his still choice. In there. Right. <laughs> yep. But also there's a, there's, a, there's a thing, I mean, certainly from season three, and, but it's a theme, it's a trope, I think, not, not just in, in, the, in this verse of, you know, once you taste blood. You know, and right. there's that with Giles. Giles isn't going to start to become shit the Ripper. See what I did there? Um, <laughs> no, it's just, it's very clear. He made a choice really consistent with his values. Boom. Speaking of season three, I know I'm going backwards, but there is that issue of Buffy is willing to kill Faith and, and take her to Angel to let Angel drain her blood. And yet the series as a whole continues to treat it as Buffy would never take a human life. And she's so devastated the two times that she thinks that she did. And I've never really reconciled that. I understand it's almost like a self-defense thing since Faith is the one who shot Angel with the arrow. But then why can't Buffy kill Ben? Well, Buffy couldn't kill Faith. Well, she tried, though. She was willing to try. She did stab her. Is this when Faith falls off the building? Right? Yeah, she stabs her in the stomach and she's like... Right. So we, yeah. I guess we don't, we don't know if Buffy... Buffy certainly went there planning to do it, but we don't, we don't really know if she would have gone all the way. Well, through. the show doesn't let her, right? Right. The show, like, gives her a free pass. The show, like, lets her take a step and not finish the job. Yeah, and then Angel drains Buffy's blood, but Buffy lives. So there's a slight, subtle suggestion there that perhaps she could have weakened Faith enough to take her to Angel, and he could have done the same thing and not killed Faith, maybe. But I I still find it a little inconsistent. Yeah, I never thought about that. But what I'm thinking about now is what I just said about Giles. Giles made a clear choice consistent with his morals buffy was kind of out of control yeah it was hard not to root for it but this oh was with about with faith her yeah her being yeah. pissed yeah. off and her boyfriend and, and listen faith was terrible you know faith <laughs> was terrible and faith was worse in season four arguably with the switching thingy mm-hmm. but 
it, it was a rash, vengeful uh, decision of a teenage girl. Yeah. Yes, this is true. Buffy, I, I often forget that Buffy is a teenage girl. And I, I mean, I think that's partly intentional on the show's part, but it's so easy to think of her as being so much older. The 20-year-old is playing her or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And even if it weren't, but yes, yes, particularly. Well, we haven't talked yet about season five, Spike. So I'm curious what both of you think about Spike's arc in season five. If you are finding this podcast helpful and you want to learn more about story structure or are looking for information about writing or publishing, you can check out the articles on writingasasecondcareer.com. You can also find free story structure worksheets there or through the link in the show notes. So Spike is my favorite Buffy character. He's but, one of my you know, faves too. I like him better than Buffy. I like him better than everyone. I don't usually go for this, which I think is a trick of the writer's room. I think that the writer's room, by the time we get through season four, has discovered that they have more in James Marsters as an actor than they thought. Mm -hmm. And they decide to take him places that may that they ob very obviously did not intend the character to go when he first shows up in Sunnydale, right? He first shows up, he's killing teachers in the hallway on parents' night. Okay. And then they discover that he's got more in him as an actor. And so they, st they sit around the table and they're like, what are we going to do with him? And we get Fool for Love to explain that, in my opinion... Spike is, in season five, who he has always been, which is a hopeless romantic, mm -hmm. a man dying to fall in love, willing to do basically anything for it, including taking on the persona of a vicious killer. So... Oh, interesting. I so believe that see... we are now explaining huh. earlier behavior with a new lens in season five. So I think that once you watch Fool for Love, once I watch Fool for Love, I am now like, oh, Spike was the Spike that Drusilla wanted when they showed up in Sunnydale. Wow. I never thought about it that way, but it, it works. The idea I don't usually that... go for that stuff. I don't like it when we rewrite history, but because I love Spike, I'm willing to give him this. <laughs> you could... See that, man, because Drusilla also kind of rescues him from where he he is yep. so frustrated and Cecily has completely trounced him and yep. he and and so Drew rescues him from that. And uh, but I still I never thought about it as he becomes the the killer that she wants, which is really interesting when you think about how Angel's story that we get in the crossovers could not, once he had his soul back, he could not go back to being the killer that Darla wanted. Mm -hmm. And yet Spike does a lot more. I feel like he has more range of choice of who, how he acts. Maybe not who he is, but how he acts. Because even with the soul, he does some pretty terrible things. And without the soul, he does some wonderful things that Angel without a soul would never do. But what about you, Roberta? What, what do you think? One of the things about Spike this season that 
on this watch annoyed me is I don't think you have to have watched the whole series or watched the whole season to see that he's sort of becoming like every time somebody protests and is like, but Spike, you're not our friend. Why are you here? What are you doing? It feel it feels more and more artificial. I mean, Fool for Love was a date. I don't, you know, and I don't understand why it didn't get, you know, why his his participation as a Scooby member, as much as he says I'm not, and they, it just, it just felt, it just felt, that all felt flat for me. It's hard to parse, like, what is he? Because he doesn't have a soul, but he always has a heart. Yeah. And, and that's what Drusilla, when Drusilla, that they, they get into that, oh no, we love, you know, and that's always been clear. So one of my favorite Spike moments <laughs> is when he's, with the first, like the pre-bought doll or whatever. And he <laughs> picks the fight with Buffy and he ends up like going nuts and knocking her head off. Or oh, yes. Yeah, with the mannequin. He yeah. keeps trying to apologize. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> uh, you know, he's, he starts off all sweet and then he's like, you bitch. It's, it's hilarious. And I feel like that is Spike taming himself or not. It's interesting. You know, whatever it is, he really always did love Joyce, did honor Joyce and felt yeah. honored by he her. And I feel like that was part of his, a bigger part of his transformation as it is than maybe gets credit for. Like part of why he cares for Dawn is out is for Buffy, but there's some Joyce there too. Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of season five is, is Spike, that he does have this respect for Joyce and that she does treat him uh, with respect. She does treat him with kindness. I feel like we get our best, this is our best Joyce. And it is, uh, I, I also just feel like it says a lot about how you treat people and what it brings out in them. Not always, but certainly she's, they are a good argument for that, that she is kind to him and she knows he's a vampire, but she also is always polite and she always asks about him and listens to him. And he appreciates it. It's not like he doesn't appreciate it. He does. But that brings me to one of my issues with season six, which is I feel like what they do with Spike, and I'll have to see when I rewatch if this is true, but in my memory, Spike in season six, he it seems like he doesn't care about Dawn anymore. He had all these great moments and he did really seem to care about Dawn and what happened to her and do a lot that wasn't about getting Buffy's favor, things that would make Buffy mad. And then in season six, we really, it's like the writers just abandon that for the most part. And and that that's my memory. And that, I, I feel like we don't, we lose that relationship. Since you like season six, Carrie, is that something you've thought about? You're sort of shocking me because that's not how I remember season six, but it has been a while since I rewatched the whole thing. And I so could maybe... be remembering wrong. I'm not, it's, we'll have to see. I don't, do you remember Roberta? Did it? Yeah. Okay. I'll have to revisit. I don't remember. I, I mean, my first or second was, well, she's getting older and maybe it doesn't feel so safe. Oh, like him. it starts seeming like kind of creepy. Yeah. From like maybe he's being more responsible for that, but that's a lot of layers. Yeah. I mean, he's still, he does try to help Buffy find her, but everything for Spike is about Buffy, Buffy, Buffy in, in the early part. Well, almost all of the season. I also remember he just didn't seem to care when she would say things like, but I need to go home because Dawn is there alone. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me he was more was more selfish in, in that and less concerned. But I'll, I'll have to see what 
what I think when it comes up. Maybe we'll, maybe if we do this again, the end of season six, yeah, we'll have to regroup. I'll make him know. We'll talk about it. Don't be mad. Bring but I okay, want to talk about Riley. Oh, I was that is so oh, funny because I was really? about to say we don't have that much time left and we haven't talked about Riley. I mean, there's a whole thing that is the first part of the season. And you and I, Roberta, have talked about Riley, but. But Carrie I and I have have not. Oh, go ahead. A couple things and then I will shut up. Watching uh, the sort of second part of it. I won't get into the, the does Buffy or doesn't Buffy love? All right, is he the one? We can, can touch on that if you want, but we, you and I have covered that. But watching him go to the vampires and then go back to Buffy and in a very Joss Whedon as a secret incel uh, dialogue, <laughs> flips it right onto her. She says, I can't believe you do this. And he says, well, what about you? Right. Right. I mean, but he really does. He really flips it right on her and she she kind of takes it. So there's that. And this is me again. There I am seeing the, the mental health issues, but he is an addict. When they come and get him, when they put him on that uh, helicopter... I can't believe they would take him. He yeah. is sick looking. And joining the rejoining the military isn't going to snap you out of that. He is sick looking. Mm-hmm. Never addressed. And I, I said mm, this to you before. Yeah. That he went through what he went through with the initiative and he was being secretly drugged. And I think there was TSD there. I don't think this was scripted well. I think it should have been. It's not just Buffy love him enough or doesn't love him. It's he's been through all this. He is a mess. Yeah. I've never mm-hmm. saw it before. He's a, and I can't believe they're going to let him run. And... Yeah. That, I mean, that is a, a really good point because sure, we saw him go through withdrawal, but then it's as if, okay, well, that's done. And that, and, and yet he still had that chip in him. So then that gets, he takes that out and. Yeah, it's like he's supposed to be okay. Now he's getting his blood drained. Yeah, regularly. Yeah, for kicks, right? For that that jolt of excitement, and that's part of what that kind of. I mean, he's in a that is not dealt with at all. And when he comes back, he's just he's all good. Well, the love of a good woman, you know. I've met a woman who can't anyway. (laughs) So Carrie, just what do you think? I don't remember if we. I'm sure we talked about Riley at some point in our. Buffy discussions, but I don't remember. Yeah. I I love Roberta's point. I definitely never thought about that before. It makes perfect sense. I was really trying to pay attention to Riley this this watch through and think about like why don't I like him? Because when I when we meet him in season four, I do like him. And then in this season, I'm just like, get away. Like bye. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't put my finger on what was going on because I I agree with Roberta. Like, he's just not well-written. It's very wishy-washy. Some episodes, he's very much like, why won't you let me in? And then in other episodes, you're like, oh, Riley's still here. Like, where were you? It's very strange that the way that they have him kind of in and out of this season. Then I was just kind of like, I don't have any feelings about her. When, when Xander gives her the woebegotten lecture about why won't you just love him he's sort of me only stronger and better she turns around and runs after he tells her to run i'm like why like why are you going there i don't understand did you just buy wholesale what xander was just telling you because i don't understand why you're running to catch the helicopter and i don't know why i stopped liking riley as a character i really and maybe it's just the, the mishmash that he was this season and the like roberta said the addiction that kind of took him over that was never defined. And all he was was a vehicle for Buffy to feel bad about herself and, and mm-hmm. view herself totally. as somebody who who puts who pushes people away. Totally. When he was going to vampires to have the suck on him. I didn't I didn't love him in season four. I, I didn't 
hate him when I first met him, but I I wasn't Mm. excited about him. But in season five in Dracula, it really put me off that Dracula's there. They're all talking about how powerful he is. He's bitten Buffy. And so Buffy is in great danger here. And for Riley, it's just all about Riley. It's all about boo-hoo. Buffy fell under Dracula's thrall and she that must mean that she really wants to be with Angel and she doesn't love me. And it it I I feel like I want to have sympathy because that would a jealousy can be it, it we've all felt it sometimes. And even if we feel like we shouldn't, but I ooh, it's just hard for me because I, I want to shake him and and say, okay, it's Dracula. Buffy is not perfect. She's not the, you know, she's not impervious to every evil thing out there. Maybe think about how to help her fight and focus on that, not, oh, I'm going to feel inadequate because she let Dracula bite her. Well, and he brings that up again in the final lecture, let's say. Yeah, the hold that Angel and Dracula have over her. It's like, you're still not over this for 12 episodes since that yeah Buffy got over it in one episode (laughs) and exactly he's the Ross Geller of Joss Whedon's oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) oh so anything else on Riley that either of you wanted to talk about bye boy they really they didn't write him well and especially in this season Mm mm-hmm It wasn't, none of it was about writing a good character. It was all about how is this going to affect Buffy from the writing standpoint. I I forget who, I was talking to another writer recently who was saying she knows, she figured out her plot and her main characters were really well developed. And she said, yeah, I knew the other characters weren't because they were just doing the things I needed them to do to make the plot work. And she's like, I know I need to go rewrite that. And, and. It sounds like like what you're saying, and I think it's right, is Riley is basically doing the things that we need him to do to propel the story, mm. but he's not getting, he's not that well-developed. And he's, he, his, I think he, I'm with you, Roberta. I think he's got a strong story there. I didn't really think about the addiction as much, but I definitely thought about the losses Riley has had and that loss of identity and that figuring out who is he outside the military. And we just never really give him the space or let him work through that. And you wouldn't have to see it all on screen. It, it could be enough that we know that Riley's going through this, but we never quite got that. Instead, it's all put on Buffy. It's all, it's all because it's all Buffy's fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all about her flaws. Right, her being too selfish or self-absorbed or not letting him in. And, and I, I, I got to agree with you that, yeah, she does not let him in. And it, it probably does say something about how she feels or doesn't feel about him. But that's not a character flaw. That's just she doesn't feel that way about him. Or it could be a character flaw. You yeah, because really it get, could be. You never get yeah. to find out. But as I, so it was a different discussion and we had it. But as I said, the way that Angel showed up and she just took his hand was never going to be Riley for her. Yeah, and, and you could see where he, he recognized that much sooner than she did. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it would have been nice to see him have some development, but I'm happy he was gone. So there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Any last thought on season five? Do you want to start, Carrie? Yeah. So I actually watched, not just like was doing something else and head on in the background, The Replacement this time. Oh, okay. That's the Zan, two Zanders. Two Zanders. 
And I hate the Zeppo. So I I have convinced myself that I hate all Xander episodes because I don't like the Zeppo. It's just like not my not my thing to each their own. Right. So I actually watched The Replacement and was delighted just because I had I went into it like, OK, I've really got to watch this. I'm doing this podcast. I got to be like diligent. And I actually watched it. I was like, oh. This is actually a great episode for Xander to learn that there is something inside of him that he has always ignored, that there is an actual adult who is capable of mature behavior and, you know, decision his job. And yes, exactly. And that maybe if he just got out of his own way, that side of him would come out more. And I think that he actually does grow as a character after that episode. We start to see him do more of that of course right after he gives Buffy the lecture and into the woods he goes home and gives Anya the most beautiful like declaration of love that is very much like stepping into who he is as a man right and I just thought you know what like they did a good job with Xander in the replacement and with him in this season he still gives lectures that I don't appreciate right has some some real problems but on the whole Good job. Yeah, I think Sander improves in season five. And and yeah, it's a good point. The replacement is a, a good turning point for him. Step in the right direction. <laughs> so what do you think, Roberta? Last, you can talk about Xander and then you could also give your last thoughts on season five. It's one of these things where you kind of, there's so many episodes, but I think you're right. I think, I think we start to see a more confident Xander after that. And this is, remember, the season begins with him declaring, like, I'm done being everybody's bitch. Oh, right. Yes. In the Dracula episode. It's great. You can make a declaration like that, but then not know how to get there. Mm -hmm. Because, and we saw, we saw how hard he is on himself. We saw his worst self. So yeah, it's a good turning point. Thoughts on season five. I think we sort of unconcealed some of what doesn't work about Glory. She's, she's too dragged out. And again, there's, there's confusion about who the big bad is, but there isn't a shift in who the big bad is. Mm -hmm. There isn't a, a first it's this one, it's this. And what we have, we haven't talked about that was it was originally written knowing if it was going to be the series finale. Is that, am I right about that? Yeah. I, yes, I think that's right. And when I watched it to the other network, right? Yeah. I didn't know in real time, I didn't know there was going to be a season six. And I was devastated when mm-hmm. Buffy died at the end. I, I was just like, oh, what? I thought that was the end. Yeah. yeah. And this other friend of mine who was a huge fan. And she didn't know either. And within seconds of that last scene, she was on the phone to me saying, what is this? What's going on? How can this be? Like, this can't be right. Mm -hmm. So I think that's right. I think it was written as a a finale of the series. My other thought of the season is, and we've talked about this, but I was more focused on the first half. And when Dawn is introduced, watching her deal with her mother's death so badly and be so angry at Buffy was once again ridiculous. People go through what they go through, but it was, yeah. it, was it was so, it was so, it's like, it's like Joss, we never met a 14 year old, even though right. when we meet Buffy, she's like 15. So yeah. it, it's so, it's just, she's so inappropriately dopey. And then by the end, they kind of pull it together. Yes. I like, I think Dawn, yeah, she's very interesting in those last couple, the last episode in particular. I I just t- recorded forever and which is the one after the body and yeah I understand Dawn feeling isolated and alone and I think that happens often in grief because people grieve differently but I agree I still struggle with the way she behaves I guess it does feel 
continuously younger than she is and not really true to her character. Although I don't know how I can say that because that's how she's been built. But mm. it's so selfish. I mean, Buffy just lost her. And here's and here's Dawn acting like Buffy's the bad guy in the loss. of In the love. Right. Yeah, it's just such an it's implausible. again. Yeah, I find her a little more relatable in season six because Buffy is so detached and it it's a longer time that Buffy is is just not there for her but it is hard to see it in the immediate aftermath of Joyce's death well thank you so much both of you I've really loved talking with you both about season five and I'm so glad you got to meet it's so great to have multiple friends who are huge Buffy fans and who do podcasts so that's It's a great combination. <laughs> Harry, it was great to meet you. And oh, I mean, you know, Lisa, I will talk Buffy till I got Yes. <laughs> and, and me too. What's this great, girls? Thank you again, Roberta and Carrie, for being here. That was so much fun. And thank you to all of you for listening to Buffy and the Art of Story. As I said, I'll be taking a break, but please come back in four weeks for Season 6, Episode 1, Bargaining Part 1, where Willow, Xander, Tara, and Anya try to bring Buffy back from the grave. You can listen to back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash buffystory or lisalilly.com slash YouTube. Comment on the episodes or connect with me on Instagram or Twitter at Lisa M. Lilly or by visiting the Buffy and the Art of Story Facebook page or email your comments to buffystorypod at gmail.com. Find book editions of Buffy in the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash Buffy Books. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy in the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2022. All rights reserved.